Thank you all. Thank you very much for leading us in the praise of our Lord. How great is God's love. It is so great that while we were sinners, undeservedly, He sent His one and only Son to be our propitiation, to take the death that we deserved and the wrath that we deserved to ransom us for Himself, for His glory. What a blessing uh, that is, and what a great love from a great God that we serve. Amen. Amen. All right. Um, hey, this morning we are going to be in the book of Mark. We're starting that back up. Um, so go ahead and turn to, to Mark chapter 12. We're going to be there. I don't have the clicker. I need your guys' help today. Thank you very much. So we got a lot to do. I'm telling you, it's going to be a long one. Don't be mad at me when we go 50 minutes. We hit noon because I'm telling you right now, strap in. Um, Corey's advice to me yesterday was talk fast, bro. So, um, let's go. When, um, when, when Piper was last year, okay, because she hasn't had that many years. Uh, last year, Piper got her first fishing pole. I bought her this pink fishing pole that Disney threw up on, like there's princesses everywhere, and she was pumped, and I was so excited to give it to her. I went to Dunham's. I remember picking it out. I'm like, she's going to love it, and she did, and so yeah, there she is. I did that, uh, just for you. And so she, um, she got it, and she just, she, it came with like this little rubber fish, and she would practice casting it, she would stand on the porch, and she got really good at practicing this little plastic, or little rubber fish, and, and then she'd cast it in the yard, and she finally got real good at reeling it in, and then she finally said, Dad, when are we going to go fishing? And I'm like, tomorrow, we're going fishing, um, and I don't remember if it was a weekday or a weekend, but we go fishing, and we're getting, we're getting ready to go fishing, and, and so I have to pack everything up, right? Like, I've got to get... Uh, her pole strung. I got to get mine untangled from last year, and I've got to actually clean my tackle box because I don't organize anything. And she has to, she's, she's sitting there watching me do all this, and she's like, Dad, when are we going fishing? I'm like, right now. Like, right now we are going fishing, getting prepared to go fishing as part of going fishing. So then we get everything packed up, we go up to a marathon, and we have to buy, like, live bait because um, she ain't ready for a hula popper. So we got to get the live bait, and, and on the way up there, she says, Dad, when are we going fishing? I'm like, we're literally in the car to go fishing. Quit asking me when we're going fishing because we're going right now. And then we finally get over there. And because for some reason in the mile and a half from Marathon to the stinking pond, the poles get tangled. I don't know how it happens, but it's like this magic thing. And, and so I'm untangling them. And Piper then, like, it's time to bait her hook. And she, like, refuses to touch the worm, which is, like, one of the essentials of fishing. Put your bait on the hook. And she goes, while I'm doing that, I'm sitting there doing it. She's got like the audacity, this three-year-old little mouth that says, hey, when are we going fishing? And I'm like, right now, we are fishing. Like, this is it. We're getting ready to catch some fish. So we throw it in. The, the line's in there. She cast it herself. She did great. And it sits in there for about 30 seconds. She's dead, kind of a snack. I'm like, we're fishing. And so uh, eventually she gets it, we sit around the whole time, and she's asking me still when we're going to catch a fish, all that, and so for her, the big thing was, though, catching a fish, like, that's what, when are we fishing is when we're reeling the fish in, that's what it is, and for me, it's the experience, it's everything leading up, it's packing, it's getting the bait, it's putting her in the car, watching how excited she is, it was giving her the pole, 
Like there's all this stuff going on for me that is going fishing with Piper and for her it's just this one big thing. And here's what happens. The kingdom of God is kind of the same way. We talk an awful lot about Jesus coming back, right? Like he's gonna come back and he's gonna rule and reign and establish his kingdom. Well, here's the thing. Sometimes we get so focused on just one big event way out in the future, we forget that the kingdom is now that we are in the kingdom, that we're living, um, we're living it out as the church, as God's uh, saints. And so um, we're th- that's kind of where we're tracking with the book of Mark. The whole, the whole book of Mark, the gospel stories in general, are about God establishing his kingdom on earth. And so um, we're going to look today in this account, kind of the law of God's kingdom, Um, We're going to look today at what it means to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And we're going to look at what it means to then love people, um, love our neighbor as ourselves. And so our ABI is this uh, today. It's that Christ has established the commands for his kingdom people. Love like Jesus, love God, and love your neighbor. Christ has established the commands for his kingdom people. Love like Jesus, love God, and love your neighbor. So um, since we're starting Mark back up, we've got this new memory verse, our verse uh, for this part of the, for this series in Mark is going to be Mark 14. It's verses 24 through 25. Mark 14 verses 24 through 25. And it says this, well, I'll read it and then we'll do it together. And he said to them, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. Let's all read that together, Mark 14, 24 through 25. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. Good. All right, so our passage is Mark 12, 28 through 34. Let me read that for us, then I'll pray, and, and we will um, dig in. Mark 28, Mark 12, 28. One of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another, and seeing that he answered them well, that's Jesus, asked him, which commandment? is most important of all. Jesus answered, the most important is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. And the scribe said to him, you are right, teacher, You have truly said that he is one and that there is no other besides him. And to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding and with all the strength and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. Let me pray over our time together. God, thank you for your word. Thank you that it molds us and shapes us. And thank you for uh, these great commandments that we're to love you. Thank you for calling us to yourself. And Lord, thank you for calling us to serve people for your kingdom. 
Lord, help us be, be truly shaped by this. Help us love people the way we love ourselves, but Lord, help us seek you hard and fast every day from this point forward. May we never be further from you than we are right now, God. We love you and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're, again, back in the book of Mark. Part of the reason this is going to take long, I'm going to catch us up. We're going to go a whole series, and, and we don't want to forget the work that's happened to this point because God has done some amazing things. Jesus has done some incredible things. And so I can't possibly, in this time, get every application from this. I can't unpack everything I've even been led to study. So um, just give me some grace here. One of the key themes, again, in the, in the Gospels is the kingdom of God. And particularly in Mark, um, we see, we've seen up to this point, we've seen Jesus demonstrate his authority in the kingdom. Um, chapters 1 through 8, Jesus is going to call his disciples. He's going to handle demons, and he's going to tell the weather what to do. Additionally, Jesus gives direction to his disciples. He sends them out. Um, he teaches on morality. He does miracles. And then what we're going to see is Jesus is going to, Gonna, uh, we're, gonna, or we're gonna see Mark show these intentionally declared movements toward the city of Jerusalem, and that's important because that begins in chapter eight when Peter declares that Jesus is the Christ. And so next, um, Jesus, we're gonna see in 11, he's gonna extend his authority as he enters Jerusalem, as his, his kingdom is being established and people are shouting out, Hosanna, blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David, Hosanna. And so this trip to Jerusalem is ultimately going to end in the passion of Christ. So shortly after entering Jerusalem, though, Jesus' authority is going to be challenged. And that's where we're at here. Um, Jesus' authority has been challenged by the Sanhedrin and the Herodians. It's these groups of people that want to pin something politically or mainly religiously, blasphemy, on Jesus. And so that's what all the questions have been about in the sections leading up to this. Now here, the person who's asking the question seems a little different. He seems a little more earnest than most people when they've been coming to Jesus. And he's coming to, to Jesus with the question of which commandment is the most important of all. He's asking, uh, and, and it's interesting, Jesus has exercised an authority, and he's coming to Jesus for an authoritative answer. It wasn't uncommon for people to ask the teachers of the time um, to weigh in on the heavier and lighter matters of the law, and so Jesus does. But what this guy's really asking is, which commandment is most fundamental to our existence? And Jesus is going to respond, 29 through 30, he's going to respond, um, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. Jesus is quoting what's called the Shema. Um, and so when he says, it's really interesting, he's saying, when he says, hear, O Israel, he's not saying, hey, just tune in. He's saying, hey, listen up. What I'm calling you to, you are going to have to respond to. Um, you're going to need to let this sink in. This is extremely important. And so Jesus is saying that our God, what you're going to have to respond to is the fact that God is one. There is one true God. He is the King of kings. There is no one higher than this one true God. It's not a guessing game as to which God to follow. There is one. And that's what he is declaring. And so your response to the fact that there is one true God and none other, your response is to love him with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind with all of your strength. Simply, we are to love God with all that we are. That's what he's saying when he combines. We are to love God with every 
faculty that we have. And so to love God with, we'll break these four things down real quick, to love God with all of your heart. This is your deepest affection. This is so that, um, this is, and it's so much so, the love is so deep that this is where we derive our identity. Um, that, that without God, we would be nothing. Loving God with all your heart means that the real me, the real me is a child of God. When I ask the question, who am I? I am God's. And that is the core of my identity with my, that's loving him with my heart. And so to love God then with your soul, this is your emotion. These are our deepest affections. And so our love for him um, can't be short of, it cannot be less than emotional. There has to be a feeling attached to uh, this love. It means that we get excited. It brings us joy when things glorify God, and it grieves us when things don't glorify God. Sin grieves us. So we shouldn't just be knowledge machines, but knowledge should lead to this deeper love of God. It's an emotional thing. It is an awe of God. And so um, uh, the, the next one is to love God with all of our minds. This means our intellect. Um, it's what he's, he's what we ponder. He's what we dwell on. God should consume our thoughts. When we think about doing something, the thought process should be, does this glorify God? Does what I'm about to do glorify God? Um, and so God should fill, we should fill our minds with the things of God. Psalm 1 tells us, blessed is the man whose delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. If we see, so here's the thing, if we then simply strive for sensation or feelings from our faith, then we're not loving God completely. We must also strive to know God deeply. If we simply strive for sensation or feeling in our faith, then we're not loving God completely. We must also strive to know God deeply. To love the Lord with all your strength, then, it means that your actions will be geared towards His glory. The way you behave, the way you live, will reveal a deep love for God and will see for others as well. But every action you take will become a step towards, it's not going to be um, making much of you anymore, but making much of him. And so um, to li- love God with all our strength means we put our physical energy towards him in all that we do. So um, I had a kid ask me one time, we said, hey, let's have fun to the glory of God. Well, how do we have fun to the glory of God. We're serious about using that fund for the discipleship of people. We're serious about using that fund to build relationships with people. When we have a good time, we simply thank God for the time that we can have. And so we must ask then, if that's what it is uh, uh, to love God with all our faculties, we must ask then, is our response to God calling us into relationship with him, is our, is our response to him calling us to dwell and be with him forever, to love him with all that we are? Is that our response? And the answer, I'm going to go ahead and give it to you, is no. We actually, we can't do that. Um, because I, I think what happens is we tend to put our love in tempor- temporal things. See, we're fallen, and so by nature, we can't keep the law. We can't keep the commands. And, and so um, we, we even feel that pull. 
It's a reality that we all know. We have this tendency to put our love and orient our lives around things that aren't of God. Let me give you an example. Um, Ohio State football. Um, we, uh, three years ago, I was watching a game with my dad, and, and we were so frustrated because it was four years ago. They were losing. It was 2017. They just lost to Penn State the year before. This year, they're playing them. They're losing the whole game. Dad and I are like, enough of this. We're not going to watch them lose. Let's leave. So we went and got pizza. We come back, and all of a sudden, they're winning, and everything's great, and we're happy, but we were super stressed. <laughs> so <laughs> why do we have these emotional responses to our teams, which we're not even on? I didn't even go to Ohio State. What's the deal? And so I'm a muskie, yo. And so I, at, the, at the end of all this, I'm, I'm dri- I remember I'm driving down my dad. We're going to get pizza. And I remember thinking, like, why is this happening? What is going on? And it hit me that, that like, this is idolatry. This is literally worship of a bunch of boys in red. And so, um, uh, uh, you know, those losing moments of the game, like they actually literally stir up in me like this bitterness. And so that's what we do. Even if it's like in the winter, we orient our lives around our basketball schedule or our baseball schedule. The mood of grown men will literally depend on the outcome of a game played by boys. I got kids in youth group that are, are like, they, they confess this all the time. Hey, what are our idols? What's the easy one to say my idol is? Oh, it's sports. I, I love I love sports, and they're kind of an idol, yeah. But I have yet for a student to say, you know what, coach, I can't make it today to practice. I want to go study God. I want to go sing about God. And so we have this conversation all the time as youth leaders. We have, I have some, some, some other youth leaders in the area, and, and we have this conversation all the time. Where can what we do fit into the, the sports schedule because um, we want to maximize attendance and give the most opportunity for it? And so these are things that we're quick to orient our lives around, but here's the thing. Why do we return to things like this? Because we want to be part of something bigger. We were built for worship. Yet in a sinful world, we found other things to worship than, and, and love than the God that we were made for. We found things that are temporary to put our affections in. This is why people work out 50 times a day because their muscles are wasting away. Even our bodies are, are fading, and yet we want to spend our time pouring in to uh, this temporary, and so I would have people tell me, well, I mean, you got to enjoy it. Like, you only get to do this for four years, or you only get to do this for, for so long, and, and my, my point is, yeah, it, 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 they're right. It doesn't last forever, so why in the world would I want to devote myself, all that I am, to something that is temporary? See, God does last forever. You're going to spend eternity digging the depths of his greatness, discovering who he is, why wouldn't you want to start in the deepest possible place? See, instead, we're quick to trade the depths of our God for the trivial, for what Ecclesiastes refers to as vapor. Many people would quickly trade the depth of their relationship with the everlasting for a game or a hobby. And so the point of this is if we're to love the Lord with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, 
which reflects our will, our emotions, our intellect, our energy? What is the actual evidence that we do love the Lord with all of us? If we could like open our mind and, and, and account for all our thoughts, if we could look at our schedules and see what's on them, if we could, if we could look at our bank accounts and see where our money's going or what's on our schedules, and, and if we could look at what we rejoice in, what would that actually reveal about you? The call is to examine yourself, examine your will, examine what you are most affectionate about, affectionate about and look at the evidence of your life and ask, what does this reveal that I love most? Maybe it's you. Maybe you look at the evidence and you're like, wow, I love me a lot. I love me some me. When Jesus says, what I'm about to say should create a response in you, does it? That the one true God is calling you to love him above all else. There's, another, there's like a flip side to this thing though. Um, so we, we're just talk, we're talking about people orienting their schedules around stuff that, that goes on. There's this other side of it, this idolatry. And it's bad. And it's, it's rooted in the idolatry of ourselves. There are people who orient their lives around going to church, but not going to God. There are people who sit in church every Sunday, attend every Bible study under the sun, who obey every evangelical tradition, who work their lives so that they're morally good and they look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside, they're whitewashed tombs. These, these are, are, are people who look at others and say, well, at least I don't struggle like that. And so if that's your attitude coming into church, that you're just going to buy the affections of the everlasting by how good you are, if you're just going to earn the affections of the everlasting by sitting in a chair on Sunday, then I think Matt Chandler said it best when he said, church is one of the lamest hobbies in the history of the world. Get a boat. Boats are great. And so there are those that want to also then sit around and they want to they parse out theology. I love theology. I like talking about it. I like hearing people's views on it. I like entering robust dialogue about it. But if that's what a relationship to God is for you, then find something else. We can have all the theological debate we want. We can sit in church all we want. We can play all the Christian music we'd like, but if it's not out of a genuine love for the Lord, then all we have are large brains and crummy music. Love the Lord and love him above everything else. This is the most fundamental part of our faith. And so the point we've been called, the point is that we've been called into this relationship with God and loving him then should be the natural response to what? to him actually loving us first. The, the increase of our intellect and the gathering of the saints and, and praising and worshiping God should all be done because he's called us into that relationship, not to somehow think we're earning it. Love God with all you have because you've been saved, not to get saved. So the overflow of our salvation should be this. And we look in verse 31. Um, the overflow of our love for the Lord should be this. Jesus says the second is this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. And so, again, Jesus is quoting Old Testament law. Um, this is particularly, um, this brings into mind, we read it this morning, B did a fantastic job, Leviticus 19, this portion of scripture 
gives the Israelites their particular requirements for what it looks like to love a neighbor. This is filled with both things that we do and that, that, well, that they do and then they shouldn't do. Um, and so you look at it and you can kind of boil it down. You can look at some things that we, we care generously about people. We act graciously. We teach. We don't harm others. We don't create potential for harm. So remember, this is in Leviticus. God is giving this law um, because these are the covenant people. God's saying, look, I want you to look different from the rest of the world. This, this is better. This is the way to live in relationship with God. And here's, so here's why they do that. Here's why they keep that command. Because God chose to enter into relationship with them. They don't keep these things as a way to, to get God or to keep God. They do these things because God has entered in with them. And so we can't even say, like, we can't do that. We can't go, look, God, I love you. See, I'm loving others. Because all you're doing at that point is you're trying to manipulate God, get on his good side, and he doesn't play those games. Our relationship with God is on his terms, not Hours. And so additionally, if you're telling me that you love God, but you don't love your neighbors, then you're not showing the fruit of someone who is in relationship with God. You see, loving others is not a precondition for being born of God. Loving others is the consequence of someone who has been born of God. And so the Apostle John, he puts it this way, whoever does not love abides in death. Abide, meaning to remain. Look, to remain in death means that you have not been saved. So let me ask you, do you love people as you love yourself? Now here's the tricky part, because now we've got to look at what it, what it means. Do, I, do we love others as we love ourselves? What does it mean to love ourselves? Well, for the most part, as fallen human beings, I think we do an awful great job at loving ourselves. This was very hard to think through because it felt terrible. So for crying out loud, I mean, this is what the initial sin was, right? That Satan, um, he, he wants to be like the Most High, and so he comes down, and that's his pitch to Eve, that you will be like God. And that, that, that she sees that the fruit is good for making her wise, and, and so um, her and Adam partake. And, and, and what they wanted in that moment was what was best for themselves. It's what fallen beings do. We love ourselves. So the question here is, do I love other people as often, or do I lift them as high as I try to lift myself? Obviously, we can't lift ourselves as high as God, um, but we still try to prop ourselves up there. Am I taking that energy, and am I putting it towards acting gracious toward others and building them up? How else do we love ourselves? Well, we get up in the morning and get ourselves dressed. We eat some food. Um, we, we take care of our basic needs. And so a lot of times we will go to great lengths to take care of our needs, but also our greatest wants. We even sacrifice for them. We give our time to work for the money to spend on the things that we want. Do we sacrifice for others in the same way? You know, in another one of the accounts of, of this commandment, um, there's a lawyer who asks Jesus, well, who is my neighbor? And Jesus responds with the story of the Good Samaritan um, to point out that, well, hey, even your enemy is your neighbor. But what we see in that story is actually how to love our neighbor 
And the good Samaritan, he does, what he does is tied in to how we love ourselves. This is the golden rule. But based on the example of the good Samaritan, we see this. What's he do? He takes care of the needs that he also has for himself. He supplies housing. He supplies food, a bed. And, and actually, this is what we see the early church doing. It's like the kingdom is working. People are loving one another. They're taking care of each other's needs. See, the Samaritan man, he's really, he, he's fulfilling this basic fundamental thing to show people love, and that's to just sacrifice for them. That's to act humble towards them. And so um, we got to wonder, well, why was the Samaritan on the road? Well, he's going somewhere. I'm sure he wasn't going somewhere just to sit in that place. He also had something to do, right? And so he gives those things up for this man. He gave up his agenda. He gave up time, gave up money, gave up transportation. So you see, love by nature requires sacrifice. It requires giving something up of yourself. It requires putting someone else's needs and wants ahead of your own needs and wants. You see, love by nature, again, requires sacrifice. And so we look ultimately to this, this suffering that Jesus takes on, this, this giving of his life to see how to love people. Jesus comes down to earth to a people who had actively, we're not passive in our sin, who actively have rebelled against him, to a people whose hearts, souls, minds, and strength found something else to love, and he shows them ultimate love by laying down his life for those people. That is us. And what he does is he takes upon himself his father's wrath so that we don't have to. And at the moment where he yields up his soul and says it is finished, he goes to war with death where it seems like the battle's going on forever, it ends three days later. Jesus rises out of the tomb, right? And, and he victoriously has established his kingdom on earth, and he now rules his kingdom. And because of that sacrifice, we can live in his kingdom, loving God and loving other people by taking that kingdom ethos to the rest of the world. So you know, it's interesting that we're talking about loving people um, as the means by which the kingdom of God operates. Do you know what James calls this in his book? He calls this the royal law. In Leviticus 19, we see that this royal law extends to even provisions for the poor. After all, God's kingdom is made up of the poor. James continues to write, he says, Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in their faith and heirs of the kingdom which he has promised to those who love him? He's saying despite somebody's crummy circumstances, they can still be fit for the kingdom. The kingdom of God looks completely different than the rest of the world. And so what that verse is in context of somebody coming into the assembly, to the gathering of God's people and then we say this is how God's people treat that person so how does um how how does this play itself out how how do the members of God's kingdom treat people well the members of God's kingdom identify people primarily by their relationship to the kingdom basically are they in the kingdom or out and so what this has to do this has everything to do with how we treat people it's how we love them, because, because here, here's the deal. If I want to love my neighbor, the thing that I am going to be most concerned about 
is the state of that person's soul. So let me ask you, have you ever been repulsed by someone? Have you ever, have you ever seen someone out in public and, like, and, and thought to yourself, oh, I'm not going near them with a 10-foot pole? Have you ever, like, is there somebody that just gets under your skin that you can't stand to be around? Well, then you're missing what kingdom love is all about. And we cop out on being like, man, I'm just, I'm just, I'm just human. That's a, that's a cop out for somebody who's a member of God's kingdom. You're missing what it means yourself to be redeemed by God. As part of God's redeemed people, we should be more concerned with the state of a person's soul than their outward appearance or their annoying little habits. Don't forget that the person that you're most grossed out by is an image bearer of God, a a person that God knit together in the womb. The person that you can't stand is a soul who's been battered and beaten by a world laden with sin. Every person you pass in Walmart, wherever you do your people watching, is a soul intentionally placed on this earth by God. And is a person, and, and that person has a soul that is in need of the very same thing that you are, a mighty Savior with an outstretched arm, ready to purchase you with his blood. That person is in need of a new kingdom. And so we look at people with a kingdom perspective, and that should drive us to radical generosity as a means to create opportunities to reveal the kingdom to them. And so I think when it comes to generosity, you guys are going to be mad at me because I'm guilty of this too, so I, I think it's, maybe it's okay for me to say it. But when it comes to generosity, I think we're a bit pharisaical. Does the New Testament tell us how to be good stewards of our money? Yeah, sure does. However, in most cases, when it's telling us that, it's telling us to find ways to turn our money into more money. Or when it's talking about stewardship, you know what it's talking about? It's talking about stewarding the mysteries of God. That's the gospel. That's what kingdom people have the responsibility to steward. Scripture gives these, it gives absolute discussion around giving to the poor. And this is what it says. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes in the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share. Luke 6 tells us, give to everyone who begs from you and from one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. Proverbs says the righteous gives and does not hold back. My point is, when we think about those who are less fortunate than us, don't couch your desire not to give up your goods in some twisted self-justification of biblical stewardship. If you want to talk to me about being a reluctant giver or a cheerful one, that passage is in the context of giving in the church. It's clear from the New Testament that kingdom people are to be marked by generosity. We are to have full and absolute faith in God that says, I love you, Lord, with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength. And out of that love, I want other people to know your love. Let me put my money where my heart is and be God's conduit to kingdom expansion. There's so much more we could say on loving our neighbor, but I just, I can't really get to it all. But don't miss out on the kingdom that is here right now. And there's work to do. That work is to be generous and loving to our neighbors. The Bible's so thorough on us. Go check out, go check out James 1. It tells us, religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Meditate on James 1 for a while. Look at how we are to treat the afflicted. 
And so let me, let me just say, if it's a scary idea to you, to, to reach out to other people, to, to start trying to graph them in, to uh, try to build disciples, let's be honest, it's awkward at first. It could be a bit weird, right, to go just love somebody because you feel compelled to go love on them. Like, admit it, it's, it feels weird to start disciples. And so, you know what, though? That's where you start, right? It's, it's weird. But now let us, the church, the saints, equip you. Our church has ministry opportunities all the way from children up to adults. You could begin to serve in a WANA youth group, join a life group. For a long time, we had loads of love. That's still rolling? Loads of love? No? Okay, but hey, we have IFI, International Friendships. Get with Peter. Find out how to support Muskingum Christian Fellowships. Goodness, we're a stone's throw away. How can we love these neighbors? Find out how you can support Young Life. If you're like, man, I, you know, I'm, I'm really not great at, at being out in front of people. Man, There are literally dozens of ways that you can, you can support the efforts of our body in bringing the kingdom to New Concord. And so, um, real quick, this is where it's something I could... I can't cut out. I need to address this because what it says is as yourself. And so I don't want to sit here and think that everyone in here um, has a, a problem with loving themselves too much. I mean, I think there are some people who are in here and they love themselves a whole lot and they don't realize it. And I think there are some people in here who love themselves a whole lot and they love that they love themselves a lot because it gets them what they want, right? But then there are a whole lot of people who are in here who are actually like, right now, I see, you know what? I don't love myself very much at all. I don't know, what am I supposed to go out and love other people when I got beef with my own self? First, this is, it is tough. If you're not a believer and that's where you're at, you're like, I can't love people. I don't love myself. These two commands are possible for those who are in relationship with God because of God. Uh, this love is the result of being in a real relationship with God, not to get yourself into relationship with God. So before you worry about anything else, if you're not a believer here, before you worry about anything else, why don't you come talk to me, talk to Brian. If you're a deacon, raise your hand. If you're a deacon, one of these guys raising your hands, if, you are, if you're like, man, I look at my life, I don't love God, I'm not a believer, find one of these deacons, man. Get with them and do some soul work. And, and, and let's talk about what it looks like to trust the Lord for the forgiveness of sins and to believe in the resurrection of Christ, which gives us hope. If you are a believer in here and you're like, you're like moments of darkness right now, like if you can't get out, if you've got feelings of deep isolation, what happens is a lot of times people will, will uh, th- they won't love themselves or, or they will, they'll have this, th- there's this lack of purpose or meaning in their life. And our lives are ultimately, they, they lose meaning and purpose when we're primarily living for ourselves or for someone who doesn't reciprocate those feelings. Look, life is always going to let us down. Life is always going to fall short. We are always going to fall short of the potential glory that's out there whether you're an employee, a student, a parent, a spouse, we're always going to fall short in one of those things. There's not a week goes by, I don't be like, man, I blew it in one of these areas. Right? Because here's the thing, though. We're not really meant to play the almighty in any one of those areas. That's not your job. That, that's what Christ did. And so when we begin to identify ourselves or the things that we use to identify ourselves, when those things are stripped away, when we blow things up, we're often left wondering, who am I now? And so here's an example. I remember turning 30. I was like, man, what did I do with my life so far? I've done nothing. Same thing happened when I left Muskingum. What in the world am I going to do? I had super depressing thoughts. I, I, honestly, I felt a little meaningless. I remember thinking when I was in college, like, all right, I'm, it's time to go be a regular, everyday, normal guy. Wasn't ready for that. 
I had way more built up. But here's what happened. I had this aha moment. This is why the great commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Because he's the one who gives us purpose. My existence now is primarily about the glory of God. This is what we're told in Colossians. Paul writes, all things were created by him, for him. Now I have purpose. And so now at the end of this life, whether the world hates me or not, whether my life, my life will have meant something. Also, if loving God leads to loving neighbors, then it's doubtful that the whole world's gonna hate me because you know what? I've got the church who's full of people who've also been called to love their neighbors. And so um, the kingdom is a beautiful thing. So this is why God calls us to love him first. It's why he doesn't say, hey, go fix you, man. Go love you, work on that, and then we'll make the world right. Because when we fail to have the right picture of who we are, when we fail to love ourselves as God's image bearers, the solution is only to run to God. Run to the author of truth who sees enough value and purpose in you to give his son's life for yours. We find our purpose in the kingdom of God. We find our purpose in the Jesus who quoted, who gave us these commandments. So look, here it is. Jesus wraps, we're finishing up. Jesus wraps this whole thing up by passing judgment. Well, he does. He tells this guy, he says, you know what? This guy says, he answers right. He's like, yeah, Jesus saw that he answered wisely. Jesus saw that he answered wisely. And here's what Jesus says to him. You are not far from the kingdom of God. In reality, the scribe is what? An arm's length from the kingdom of God, (laughs) right? But it remains that he's still not part of it. Why? Because although he knows the law and he knows that, that God should be loved, he's not loving God. Because the sign of someone who loves God is that they're willing to confess that the Lord is one, that he alone can save. And so you see, before this scribe is fully able to love God, he must be in relationship with God, which means he must accept Christ as his Savior. He must understand that he can never fully keep either of those two commandments. And so therefore, he has broken every part of the law. And he must understand that in his rebellious, sinful state, he can't love God with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength. Yet even though he can't do that, God still sends the Son of Man to go pay the penalty for the sin upon the cross. Because we cannot love God with all that we are. You know what? Jesus did. He remained unblemished, the spotless lamb, so that we must trust that we are made clean by the blood of Christ. And that it's after three days Christ rose victoriously in order to be our mediator before God. So God only sees us as loving him because we are only righteous because of his son. And so this is how the scribe must go from being at arm's length of the kingdom to actually being in the kingdom. So if you're here today and you're a Christian, even while we're doing communion, take inventory. Lay your life bare before yourself. Be completely honest. Do the affections of your heart reveal that you love God with all of it? Does the will of your soul reveal that you're living a life for God above everything else? And if it doesn't and you want to fix that, here's how you do it. You run to God. Literally pray to God. Ask him to draw you in. Ask him to make the cross more beautiful to you than it's ever been before. And then go love. Let your love for your neighbor, whether they're rich, poor, cool, lame, weird, a little less weird, old or young, Democrat or Republican, let your love for them be known as an overflow of the affection that you have for the Savior. 
Don't sit there and ask, is the kingdom here and miss out on the joy of walking in it? When will the kingdom be here? Right now. Go love God right now with all that you have. And go love people right now. If you're in here and you're not a Christian, come be a part of God's kingdom. This is literally the best thing that's ever happened to me. God has extended to me a salvation I didn't deserve. Be part of a kingdom that seeks to love like Jesus did and join the mission in bringing the love of God to the rest of the world. No longer keep the greatest kingdom ever to be established at arm's length. Enter in by trusting that Jesus' death on the cross and his resurrection is the only thing that can make you righteous. Then partake with us in serving our king. So we're about to take communion. Um, praise team can, can come on up. I believe you guys are doing that for me. Uh, we can take communion, and, and let's remember uh, the Lord's love for us together. One of the best ways we can love each other is u- in unity, reminding each other of the good news that Jesus came and purchased us with his broken body and his spilled blood, making all of us who profess faith in him a clean people. One of the ways that we love each other in the kingdom is by, re- by reminding one another of that very reality that we were loved and made clean by Christ. Let me pray for us. God, as we take communion, as we reflect on our lives, may you impress upon us the love that you've shown us. Will you call upon us and remind us of the relationship you've brought us into so that, Lord, we can love you more. Lord, it feels good to love you. It's great to learn more about you. And Lord, it feels good to love other people. Will you make us a people who want that more and more every day? Lord, give us hearts that want to dwell on you all the days of our life. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Do. And so in uh, 1 Corinthians, Paul writes to them about this. And he says this, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And so we this morning are picturing together as a body of Jesus' sacrifice for us. And so the Lord's table is an ongoing, repeatable practice that we do as a church that signifies that we have union with Jesus, that we are continuing on in the Christian faith, uh, that we also have unity with one another. That's why I don't just go home after this and just eat some crackers and drink some grape juice and be like, mm, that's a great Lord's Supper. No, this is something that we do together, signifying our unity as a body together. And so this morning, it is our privilege and it is our responsibility to celebrate the Lord's Supper. This is not the church's table. This is not the denomination's table. It is the Lord's table, and it's for the Lord's people. 
And so this table is open for all who are the Lord's people who have turned from their sin and trusted in Jesus and have obeyed Jesus' command of baptism and trust in him alone for salvation. And so if you are a Christian, we encourage you and implore you to remind one another of the Lord's sacrifice. Now having said that, the Apostle Paul gives us a warning that we should hear this morning. He continues to write in 1 Corinthians 11. He says, Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So there is a way to do this that has little consequence on how we think about others, and there's a way to do this where we are thinking about our unity together as a body, as we think about Christ's sacrifice for us. And so we are called uh, to do this in a way that remembers Jesus. So this is not a converting or saving ordinance. This is not something you take in order to receive saving grace. This is a reflection that says we are bought by Jesus' blood and we are going to continue walking with him. So let's not do this out of form. Let's not do this out of just because, you know, we happen to be here on a Sunday morning, but let's do this with joy. Let's do this while we love the Lord with all that we are. And so if you're not a Christian here today, boy, what a great Sunday for you to be here. Because we have sung the gospel, we have prayed about Jesus' love for us, we have seen it in the scriptures, and now we get to see a picture of it visibly. But if you're not a Christian, it's going to be hard for you to do this in remembrance of Jesus if you aren't first following him. And so if you're not a Christian, we just ask that you just let this pass by. We don't want you to eat and drink judgment upon yourself. We the kingdom of God also. And so, if you are a Christian, brothers and sisters, while the are being displayed, to examine ourselves and to remember with joy Christ's sacrifice for us. And so, as is our habit of doing, we are going to pass out each element individually and then take it all together. So once you get it, hold on to it, and then I'll lead us in taking it together. Friends, remember Jesus' words on the night that he was betrayed. He took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Those who are helping distribute the elements, would you come forward at this time?
friends with joy, let's remember together. Awesome. Will you lead us in prayer before we take the cup? Lord, um, thank you. Thank you that, that you've called us to be part of your kingdom. You made that possible. Lord, thank you by uh, making that possible through this. Your son, Lord, how can spilled blood be a joyous thing? Lord, because it's brought me to you. And so I thank you for that. Lord, remind us of your goodness and the grace we've received through your son as we take the cup in Jesus' name. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Let's remember together. Friends, as Austin preached this morning, the kingdom of God is not only in the future, it is now that we are to begin to live out. And yet there is also a not yet that we still look forward to, isn't there? There is still the promise in verse 26 that says, For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And so, friends, as we wait, for the Lord to come. We live out the kingdom now. We proclaim the kingdom now, but let us not forget that there is a day that he is coming and we will eat and drink with him. What great joy we have with that. Let's stand and finish singing the song that we were just that we had just begun. Let's stand and sing together. Friends, hear our benediction this morning from 1 Thessalonians. It says this, Now may the God of sanctify you completely and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ he who calls you is faithful he will surely do it amen have a great rest of your Lord's day